Amen. So we're in the last message in a sermon series called The Way. We've been talking about becoming disciples of Jesus. And if you remember specifically, we talked about how that Jesus, when he called us, he didn't just say, hey, here's the gospel message, believe and come to church on Sunday. No, he said, follow me. Let me show you a new way of life, a new direction for humanity as a whole and become one of my disciples. Learn of me. Learn my way of life. Take my yoke, take my set of teachings upon your life, and don't just say a prayer and say you're saved, but live a lifestyle of salvation. Let salvation work through you. And so we talked about the call to becoming a disciple of Jesus is one, to be with Jesus, to spend time with Him, to get to know Him. We talked about the practices involved in that, prayer, fasting, meditation, Sabbath, all of these different things that we implement into our lives so that we begin to basically connect to the vine so that Jesus could bear and produce fruit in us. And then we don't just be with Jesus, but we become like Jesus. And over time, He's shaping us by the power of the Holy Spirit to be conformed to the image of Christ. And we even said, hey, that the, the reason you get saved, as good as, as good as it is, is not simply so you don't have to go to hell when you die. It's so that Jesus can put heaven in you right now and that he can reveal his kingdom through you to a broken world. That he wants to reveal salvation through you right now. He wants you to experience that right now. And he wants you to walk with him and live that lifestyle. And then lastly, and this is what we're going to cover today, is you don't just be with Jesus, you don't just become like Jesus, but ultimately you you move into a place where you do what Jesus did. Now, that sounds overwhelming as soon as I hear it, in it? Somebody said, well, you know, Jesus, he healed the sick and cast out demons and stuff like that. You know, Clay, I mean, I don't know if you should preach this or not. But we're going to unravel this. And what I want to do first is let's go into Matthew. I'm going to read a lot of scripture, and I'm not going to apologize for it because this is, in fact, church. Amen. <laughs> so Matthew chapter 4 Verse 18 through 20, I'm going to read a lot of verses right here because I want you to see a survey of the book of Matthew on the pattern that Jesus takes his people through for discipleship. In Matthew chapter 4, here's where we begin, verse 18. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. That was their career. And then he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. Now we said that when he said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men was not some kind of cliche, goofy uh, statement where he was saying, you know how you're catching fish out there? You're going to go out and now catch men, reel them in. So, no, he was, it was actually a Hebrew idiom that he was basically saying, I'm going to make you a teacher and I'm going to make you somebody that can teach this world what it means to live the kingdom of God lifestyle and you'll be able to teach in such a way that you will capture men's hearts, minds, and imaginations through the power of the Holy Spirit and you will reel them in. And then, and then they hear this and immediately they leave their careers. They make a radical decision to say, all right, we're going to do this. We're going to forget making money for the time being. We're not going to take these fish in. We're going to follow Jesus into this place. And so in Matthew 4 verse 23 it says, and Jesus went about all Galilee Notice what he does, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. And then his fame went throughout Syria and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. 
Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. So he calls the disciples. A few of them begin following him. And what he does is he starts to demonstrate what the kingdom of God looks like. He goes into synagogues like we're in here today, and he starts to stand up and teach. As he teaches, something might happen. What matter of fact, when he went into one of the first synagogues, a demon manifested in the place and said, We know who you are. You're the Holy One, the Son of God. Have you come to torment us before the time? He delivers that man. And then they start bringing to him many who are demon possessed, sick, paralytics, epileptics, all kinds of different people. And it says that he healed them all. And see, he's preaching a very specific message. It says that he's preaching the kingdom of God. In other words, he's preaching and he's demonstrating this is what the kingdom of God looks like. In the kingdom of God, there is no epilepsy. There is no being paralyzed. There is no sickness. There are no demons. And therefore, he was bringing deliverance to all those things to give you a foretaste and a foreshadowing of this is what the ultimate kingdom is going to look like. You're going to see complete healing, complete deliverance, complete freedom from sin and the powers of darkness. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. And he was preaching it among the people. So they all begin to follow him because I don't know about you, but if I saw a dude doing this, I would start following him too. I would, I would become interested. So he notices now that he has a gathering. Some scholars would say about 5,000. And when he notices this gathering of about 5,000, he walks up on a mountain then right after this in Matthew 5. And Matthew 5 through 7, he teaches his manifesto on the kingdom of God, the Sermon on the Mount. And after he teaches that, he comes down from the mountain. In chapter 8, he heals a bunch more people. And then in verse 18, it says this. And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, by this time they say it probably reached up into the thousands. And he had taught over the course of a few days on the Sermon of the Mount. So great multitudes were all around him. He gave a command to depart to the other side. And then a certain scribe came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. I mean, I would have probably been pretty excited about it myself. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's like, but if you're going to follow me, you got to understand, I ain't got a nice apartment. I ain't got a house somewhere. We ain't got no pillars. You're going to have to take account of what you're going to get into if you're going to follow me. And so he's letting them know this isn't going to be easy. And then he goes on to say, Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And so what you see is that there are some very eager to follow Jesus, but then there are also some that make good excuses on why they can't follow Jesus. Amen. So he's demonstrating this, and everywhere he's going, he's literally calling all kinds of people to follow him. He's not holding anybody back, but he's wanting them to count the cost. He's wanting them to understand, what are you going to have to lay down in order to do this? And some are eager, but some are good at making excuses, just like ourselves. Verse, chapter 9, verse 9, we're going on. Now as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, once again, follow me. So he arose and followed him. And now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples, my Lord. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. 
I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so now we see that when he's calling disciples, I love this about Jesus, because the disciples he called are not the high up religious elite. They're not the smartest people. They're not even the most holy people. He sits down and eats with tax collectors and sinners. Matthew, they would have been ostracized by the religious elite completely. They weren't allowed in the synagogue on Sunday. And I'll just be honest with you. Matthew, in order to do what he did, he would have had to betray his own people out of love for money. And he would have been rejected by his people and been fine with that because all he really wanted at the end of the day was more money. So he extorted his own people working for the Roman government, stealing those people's money. My point being is that Matthew was messed up. All his friends were messed up. He hung out with tax collectors and sinners. And what does Jesus do? He calls them to follow him. You know what that means for you and I? It means that we ain't necessarily got to have our act together before the call to follow Jesus comes to us because he says, I'm after some broken people. I'm after some messed up people. Those are the ones that I'm calling to repentance. I don't want the ones that are well. I want the ones that know they are sick in need of a Savior so I can transform their life. I told somebody the other day, I would trade, I'd trade, you know, we were joking around about trading church people and I said, well, I'll trade you three of my religious ones for, for one good drug addict, Amen. My point being is, you know, you can get a lot of religion in you and be one of the worst Christians that there ever was, but you can find a drug addict out here on the streets that experiences the grace of God and is transformed by the love and power of the Holy Spirit, and they're the best Christian you'll ever find because they know where they came from. And so when Jesus goes out and calls people, he calls what in our minds sometimes is some of the worst folks. So he brings them together, and in chapter 9, verse 35, it says, Then Jesus went about. All the cities and villages, more and more people are following him. He's teaching in their synagogues. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And so notice this. He said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So Jesus literally looks at all the healing that he's doing, all the deliverance and freedom that he's bringing, the multitudes following him, but yet he sees the masses and he says there's not enough folks in the ministry. There's not enough folks out here in the harvest fields, laboring in the harvest fields. So he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Now, this word send out is a a Greek word, ekbalo. It's the same word that Jesus used for casting out demons. It meant to cast out with force. He said, I want you to pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send out people with the same force that I drive demons out because they would recognize how important it is right now to get out into the harvest field and labor to reap this harvest of people who need the kingdom of God and who need to know who God truly is, who really need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he sees this reality and where does Jesus turn in order to make this happen? Matthew 10 verse 1. When he called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. 
In verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, now he tells them what to do, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. So he's saying, look, you've been following me for a while now. You've watched what I'm doing. I'm teaching the way. I'm preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And now I'm going to give you that same power and authority that I've been walking in. You've been watching me long enough. Now I'm going to watch you and I'm going to send you out. I want you to go out and do the same thing that I've been doing so that we can expand this throughout all Israel. And we know that according to the book of Luke, he doesn't just send 12. Matter of fact, in one specific place in Luke, he sends 70 others besides the 12. And the 70 come back besides the 12 apostles and say, Lord, they start rejoicing, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Like they showing up on people, start preaching the gospel, the king and a demon would manifest. They cast the thing out and this demon would obey and leave. They come back rejoicing. He said, don't rejoice because the demons are subject to you in my name, but rejoice that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so he's training his disciples. And here's my last one for a minute. Amen. Y'all like, man, Clay, it's too much word, too much scripture. So Jesus dies. He pays the penalty for sin. He's resurrected from the dead. And then he, he, he gives his followers this mandate at the end of Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority, all authority now has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's important because Adam in the beginning in Genesis 3, by believing Satan and eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he forfeited his authority over to Satan. Jesus resisted Satan's temptations the same way that Adam had failed, but yet he dies on the cross taking the full penalty and the full weight as if he'd broken every law of God. He reverses it, blows sin, death, hell, and the grave, and Satan himself up from the inside out when he's raised. And he says, guess what, boys? That authority you lost, it's now given back into my hands. And I'm telling you, based on that authority, go therefore, in verse 19, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, did you see the pattern in that? I don't know. I read a lot. Y'all, some of you probably tuned me out about halfway through. I get that. But here's the thing. There is a pattern right there that if you read throughout, Jesus is making disciples over the course of a three-year period. And so you see him in the beginning, like he's calling some guys and he, and he says, hey, come follow me. Watch this. Check this out. He goes and he preaches the kingdom. They're hearing his teaching. He's healing everybody who's sick. He's casting out demons and bringing freedom. And he's allowing them to watch. And then they're developing his lifestyle. Like they're learning to pray, to get up early in the morning and pray. They're learning how to walk with the Holy Spirit. They're learning how to spend time alone in prayer. And they're, they're developing his way of life, taking on his yoke. And then they get to a certain point after a place in time where he says, all right, boys, you've been with me long enough. You've seen enough. Here's the Holy Spirit I've been operating in. I want you to go out in the same power and authority. And I want you to do the very same things that I've been showing you. Because really there's four stages to discipleship, and this is four stages to any type of apprenticeship. Like even whenever you do something, right, if you're trying to get somebody to learn a computer back here or whatever, number one, I do and you watch. Like I'm just going to do this and then you go watch. Secondly, 
I do and you help. In other words, Jesus is like, all right, boys, now you're going to help a little bit. We're going to feed 5,000. I want you to pass out the bread, Peter. Can you handle that? And he passes out the bread and he lets them help. And then it gets to the point where he says, all right, now I'm going to tell you what to do, but you do and I'm going to teach you and I'm going to help you. But then there's going to be a time come when I'm going to turn it all over to you. You're going to become my body in the earth. You're going to do and I'm going to watch in a sense. And so he's releasing them into all the world to continue his work. Now, this is crazy because I know that what we think as Christian people is that ultimately, especially in an American mindset in, a, in an enlightenment type of a, 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 an age where we just think about only natural means and, and this and that, we don't think of it that way. What we have come to think in the American church is, again, that we should just preach the gospel, people say a prayer and get saved, and then we meet for church on Sunday. Jesus did not teach that, though. He taught us to become followers, to be disciples, and then to go into all the world and not just make converts, but make disciples, people who changed their life and sought to reiterate exactly what Jesus did in all the earth. Now, do I believe that I can do exactly what Jesus did on the same level that Jesus did? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Jesus is a little bit different than me. Amen. Do I believe that Jesus has called his body, his people in the world to carry out his mission and in some regards to do the exact same things that he was doing, at least on some level, to point to the kingdom of God and bring people into salvation? I do. I believe that you and I have that mandate together corporately as the church and the body of Jesus Christ. So the end goal of discipleship to Jesus is to do what he did as a corporate body to do what Jesus did. Now, does that sound, you feel overwhelmed yet? Like, man, I just don't know if I can do all that, Clay. I don't, I don't know if we're supposed to be doing that stuff or not. And so the question is, what exactly was Jesus working on? And I, and I gave you this about three or four weeks ago whenever we first did it. But Jesus' kingdom work, let's look at it. If we read through that, you would have seen some of these same things. And then toward the end, there were some probably that were left out. But number one, he was preaching the gospel. Two, he was teaching the way. Three, he was healing the sick. Four, he was casting out demons. He was eating and drinking with people far from God. He was doing justice. He was peacemaking, forgiving, and loving enemies. He was praying and fasting. He was prophesying. And he was standing up against religious and political corruption. So the end goal for a follower of Jesus is to be able to do all that. Can you amen me this morning? I mean, y'all are, y'all is like, it, I, we might as well leave. This is too much. We're overwhelmed. Clay, I'm just trying to get up and pray in the morning. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, I'm good if I read a psalm, bro. You know what I mean? Like, you tell me I, to do all. Now, here's the thing. We get overwhelmed when we start to think about this. When we start to think about Scripture and we read the reality of these things, we get overwhelmed. But here's what I'm going to say. Don't stress out because anytime we talk about Jesus and following Jesus or Jesus being the model, people really start to lose their minds, honestly. But here's what happens. In, in, in the age of the Enlightenment, the last 200 years in the church, there was a switch in the way people viewed Jesus. People used to view Jesus as a model for life and as a template. That they looked at him and said, that's the perfect man. That's what we should strive after. 
They saw Him as God, absolutely. They also saw Him as Savior, absolutely. But what happened was there was a switch where we said, we don't really believe in the supernatural things of God anymore. Jesus is not a model for our life or not a template for our life. There's no way we could ever strive to become like Jesus. Jesus did what He did to demonstrate that He was God, and then He died for us wretched sinners, and we're going to continue to be horrible, wretched sinners who really bring about not much good in the earth at all, but at least we get to go to heaven when we die. Amen. And so there was, a, there was a massive switch over the last 200 years because we stopped believing that the end goal of getting saved and following Jesus was actually becoming like Jesus and His work continuing to be accomplished through us in the world. So the educated elite said, man, we believe in the natural, but not the supernatural. Can I tell you that the words of natural and supernatural, first of all, are not even in Scripture. It's a false dichotomy. What we've done is we've said, you know what, the things that we can measure by verifiable data, that's natural, and anything outside of that is supernatural. But do you know the supernatural happens all the time? It happens all the time in a variety of ways. And those two things are not to be separated from one another. God created this natural world, and you know what He does? He moves very often in His natural world in what we call supernatural ways, but to Him it's still just natural. What Jesus was doing may have been supernatural to us, but to him it was natural. Because he was designed to break into his creation with the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven to bring transformation. So they believe he's Jesus. And here's the thing. People will say with with a lot of this stuff, they'll say, well, you know, but Jesus, Clay, he did all that stuff because he was God. And I'll say, amen, he did, you're right. He did all that stuff because he was God. But what does that mean about his disciples? Because we just read that his disciples did the same things, right, amen? And I was reading, you know, because some people believe, well, the gifts of the Spirit, they've ceased and these things don't happen anymore. I was reading throughout church history uh, several years ago that you can go back and look at Tertullian in the year 100, even Augustine in the year 300. Augustine wrote down 70. He, he, he wasn't sure if the gifts of the Spirit were for today anymore, but he wrote down 70 verified miracles that he saw, even though he wasn't sure if he believed when they prayed for people. 70 verified miracles, but we're not sure if we believe it or not. That's the kind of world we live in, right? Like, like we're not sure if this stuff happens anymore, but I still did see 70 verified miracles, by the way. And we see miracles and we will pawn it off onto any other thing or something like this. And and I get it. Do we see miracles in the same way that I just read? I don't believe that we do. I've not. I've not seen people raised from the dead personally. I have seen people healed. I have seen demons uh, cast out. I have seen these things. Am I saying that it is to be the norm to be exactly like Jesus on every front? No, not necessarily. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that if you read the Scripture and, and believe what it says, Scripture teaches us that we are to operate in the same power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus operated in. And there there can be no denying that. And Jesus, what you need to understand is though He was God in the flesh, never ceased being God. He entered into humanity and took on being a human in such a way that He chose to limit parts of His divinity in order to be a human. In order to be a human. And then he became reliant upon the Holy Spirit because what we know about Jesus, as far as we know biblically, he did not do a miracle until the Holy Spirit came upon him. Amen. And after the Holy Spirit came upon him, he went into prayer and fasting for 40 days, came out in the power of the Spirit, and then all of a sudden he enters into this ministry. And each time he does something, he says he does it by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And so he's relying on the Holy Spirit in order to become the last Adam and show us a new way to live. In other words, he's saying, you know what? The, la- the first Adam, he failed you all, and now you're bound to sin. I'm going to come and set you free from sin, but I'm also going to establish a new model for humanity that once humanity is saved, they can rely on the Holy Spirit to transform them from the inside out, put new heart in them, put a new mind in them, put love in their hearts, joy and peace. But not only that, come upon them and equip them to do the same works that I did in power. Amen. To preach the gospel, to teach the way of God. I don't know about you, but before I really encountered the Holy Spirit, before I was filled with the Holy Spirit, I had no desire to preach the gospel. There was no boldness in me to get up and speak to anybody about Jesus. But when when I was filled with the Holy Spirit of God, I would get around my friends and my heart would begin to pound out of my chest and I could not help but preach the gospel. See, the Holy Spirit has been given us to continue the works of Jesus Christ. We may not see them in the same measure of Jesus because at the end of the day, we're not Jesus. And Jesus had a unique relationship with the Holy Spirit. God gave the Holy Spirit to Jesus without measure. You and I, guess what? We got him in measure. You know why? Because we don't live like Jesus. Our hearts aren't like Jesus. And if the Holy Spirit was to give me the same exact power and measure that he gave Jesus, I would probably abuse it and try to get people to worship me. Amen. I'd be over here, like I told you before, with a big white coat trying to wave all y'all out today. Amen. Y'all with me this morning? But see, this is essential. This is important because as a body... Not as just one individual person, but as a body, we should expect to see Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit continuing to do the work that he did on some level. Now, don't get me wrong, because we don't want to see miracles and healings for miracles and healings sake. Now, if we read through Matthew, what we saw was a lot of miracles and a lot of healing. Would you say amen to that? Like we, we cannot deny that. Even after Jesus left in the book of Acts, did we continue to see a lot of miracles and a lot of healings? Why did those things happen? Some people say, well, 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 it just happened because they had to prove that Jesus was God. On some level, I believe that's absolutely true. I believe in the book of John, John was saying that the seven signs that he did were to show the point that, hey, Jesus is God. And those miracles were to provoke the people to say, hey, man, he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And that's, this, this is the Messiah. This is God in the flesh so that they would believe him. Because can I tell you this? It don't matter if we see a miracle and see somebody get healed. If they don't know Jesus, it don't matter. Somebody amen me. Because in the end, everybody who enters into the kingdom of heaven will be healed. Healing's either going to take place here or if it doesn't, it's going to take place there. The key, the reason we even have miracles or signs or wonders or healing or anything, at the end of the day, if we have any of them, they are given to us to point us to the reality of the person and the victory of Jesus so that men and women can be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Like if, we, if you just go and pray for somebody to be healed and they don't come to Jesus, man, they just got healed. They're still going to die and not experience the ultimate healing. So we are given these things in order to point to Jesus. I think that, that that is absolutely the most essential thing. But see, that doesn't mean that we just throw the baby out with the bathwater. We have an already but a not yet kingdom. So everything that we see is partial and fragmentary. Amen. And the Bible even talks about it when it talks about the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and it goes to 1 Corinthians 13. It says, hey, we know in part, we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect, has come, all this will be done away with. We won't need to see miracles or healings or have supernatural knowledge or anything because it says then we will see 
face to face. We will see Christ in person when he returns and we will know even as we are fully known. And those things will be done away with. But as it stands right now, Jesus has called a church body to follow his way. Somebody said, well, Clay, you know, if you believe in all that stuff, how come we don't see more of it? Have you not listened to my entire sermon series? The reason we don't see more of it is because we don't practice the way that Jesus practiced. And that's not a word of condemnation, but it's an invitation to say there's so much more in the kingdom of God of what we could see as a body of believers if we were willing to follow the way that Jesus taught us to follow rather than an American model of church in 2022. That's good preaching right there. Amen. I know y'all ain't feeling that this morning, but... I'm just saying I want to see, I, want, I don't want to hinder God from doing what he wants to do in my life. You know what, if I pray for a sick, I've prayed for a lot of sick people and nothing happened. You know what I'm talking about? But I don't want to hinder anything that the Lord wants to do in my life. Because on some days and on some occasions, I've prayed for people and God has worked miraculously. And I know other people who have experienced the same. And so I need to be a willing vessel that's in prayer, that's praying, that's fasting, that's seeking the Lord, that's open to the movement of the Holy Spirit to say, Lord, whatever you want to do through me today, you want me to give a word to somebody, you want me to lay hands on a sick person, if a demon manifests in prayer, I'm going to be open. Amen. Somebody said, I ain't open for that, Clay. That's just too much. But we need that reality in our hearts as Christian people to say, there is more to this that you're calling us to, and we need to be open. And I'm going to tell you something. Somebody's like, well, I just don't even know how to begin. Nobody knows where to begin. This is why he sent us the Holy Spirit, who he said would teach you all things and lead you and guide you into all truth. Every encounter I've had with the Holy Spirit, doing something beyond my capabilities was not because I knew how to do it. It was because I felt his unction and his impression to say, step out and do this, step out and do that. And in the process, he taught me. But if you don't have the faith to be willing to follow the Spirit and step out in the process, you're never going to follow. And it starts with the most simple things. It starts with being in church and feeling an impression from the Holy Spirit to go over and, and just speak a word to somebody and say, you know what, I feel like maybe the Lord is saying this to you right now. And if it hits, it hits. And if it doesn't, you know what, you go back and you try again. But it's simple things like this where we say, I need to be open to the Holy Spirit to move outside of my box to begin to attempt to allow the Holy Spirit to do the works of Jesus in and through me. This is so essential because we live in this kingdom where Jesus is trying to do these things. And when He comes up from the dead in John 20, verse 21 through 22, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me. He's saying the same way the Father sent me to do this in the world. He said, even so, I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is saying, my earthly mission is not over, boys. The way the Father sent me, I'm now sending you. And the way that you're going to accomplish what I'm sending you to do is the same way I accomplished what the Father sent me to do through and by the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was called the Christ because he was the anointed one. The power of the Holy Spirit was upon him. You are now a Christian because you are a little anointed one with the same power of the Holy Spirit upon you. 1 Corinthians 1.21, it says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. Do you think that when Jesus went to the Father, he said, You know what, Dad, I'm done, I did it. Now I want you to send the second string Holy Spirit down to my people. I want you to send that Holy Spirit that does less than he did with me and the disciples. I want him to go down there now and all I want the Holy Spirit to do now is sort of like, sort of convict people on Sunday a little bit. 
Maybe they'll come to an altar in prayer, but that's all we want the Holy Spirit to do. Somebody said the other day, I heard a guy say to somebody, you know what, we, we, we've got the Bible. We don't have any need for the Holy Spirit anymore. That means they worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. Can I tell you that we worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in this house? And we have the Word of God, the written truth of God's Word to help us and enable us to worship the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit properly. The Bible is not God. The Bible is given to us by God in order to worship God properly. And so we don't say, well, because we have the Bible now, we don't need the Holy Spirit. Folks, we need the Holy Spirit worse than we've ever needed the Holy Spirit in the history of time. And somehow or another, it's getting into our churches that all we need is better doctrine. You ain't going to win this world with better doctrine right now. I'm telling you, they need an encounter with a living God. We're going to continue to teach the best doctrine that we know how. But when Paul came in upon the Corinthians, he said, listen, when I came among you, I, 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 I sought not to know anything except Christ and him crucified. And my preaching and my teaching were not with enticing words of, of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and the power. He said, I came and preached Jesus crucified and the Spirit of God began to move in your hearts. Things happened in your midst and you were convinced by the power of the Holy Spirit that this Jesus was really God in the flesh. And we need to come into a place where prayer and fasting isn't something we do in January, but it's something that we dive into because we're saying, God, there is more on, at stake here. There's a greater anointing that you want to bring us. And in John 14, verse 12 through 13, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, in context of telling them about the Holy Spirit and Him leaving, he said, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, I don't know. I read that verse and I'm just like, man, that's, I, I can't believe that. And somebody said, well, you know, the greater work is getting people saved. I'll agree with you on that. I, I, think, I think the greatest work at the end of the day is somebody giving their life to Jesus Christ. And salvation is the greatest work because what it does is it means that ultimately they are going to be healed and they're going to live eternally. Even if nothing goes right in this world, they got it made in the next. You know what I'm talking about. So that is the greatest work, but it still does not change the fact that Jesus said, the works that I do, you will do also. So he's saying that his body on some level is going to continue to do some of the works that he did for a very specific purpose, to point to the coming kingdom and to provoke people's minds and imaginations to the reality of who Jesus Christ is. And so, with that reality in mind, here's what uh, Gerald Hawthorne said. He's the professor of Greek at Wheaton College, and I figure, like, if he's the professor of Greek, you'll at least think, okay, he's got some sense. Because I know you don't think I got any, but... <clears throat> he says, the significance of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus extends to his followers and all the little and big things of their existences. The spirit that helped Jesus overcome temptations, that strengthened him in weakness, that aided him in the hard job of taking on himself the hurts of the hurting, that infused him with the power to accomplish the impossible, that enabled him to stay with and complete the task that God had given him to do, that brought him through death. And into resurrection is the spirit that the resurrected Jesus has freely and lavishly given to those who would be his disciples today. Somebody say amen to that. Now see, this reality, what it did to me when I first got in the Bible and started reading it, this reality started getting in my heart and stirring me up to say, man, am I really honestly capable of seeing these things in my life? Is this even a possibility? 
Can we be? And I got so stirred that I began to pray. I began to fast because I was believing God to do things in my life that I could not do on my own. And slowly but surely, I began to see him move in my heart. I began to see him use me to bless others, to, 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 to bring deliverance and freedom into people's lives. But here's the thing. Some of us, we just struggle with the first two parts. You know what I'm talking about? We, we talked about being with Jesus. Many of us, we're struggling with that part. Like, it's hard for us. You know, you talk about casting out demons. Some of you moms is like, I got three at the house right now. You know what I'm talking about? Like, we can't cast them out. They're our flesh and blood. And, and, and so when we talk about your stage of life and where you're at, this is a process. So, yeah, I'm setting the bar high this morning. I, this is some hard stuff right here. I'm getting very practical here in just a minute, and I'm going to make it a little bit more attainable for all of us. But this is the thing. A church is a community of followers. A church today is a community of followers of Jesus seeking to rediscover the teachings of Jesus and the practices of the early church and apply them to the soil of a post-Christian world. What I'm saying, folks, is that we have been shaped by a post-Christian world and really a post-Christian church so that what we practice and what we see and what we do is far different than what Jesus and his disciples did and the church did in the first century. And what I'm saying is we got to go back to Scripture and see what Scripture taught, rediscover those teachings, implant them into our lives and into 2022. But the problem is, is we're in a laboratory because we ain't got it figured out yet. And if I told you that I'd have it, had it figured out, I would be lying. I am in process and I've got a long way to go. But I'm going to the scriptures and unpacking it and hearing this call of Jesus saying, Hey, my church, this has always been in the book and I'm still calling you to it to become exactly what is written. You are my people to be filled and anointed with my Holy Spirit to continue to do my works right here in Manchester, Kentucky, in Laurel County, in southeastern Kentucky, and ultimately even into the uttermost parts of the world. And he's calling us into this. And so number one, I'm going to go through four points really quickly. But in order to do what Jesus did in the power of the Spirit, we must participate with the Spirit through the practices of Jesus. And this is something that we've been, we've been talking about for, for, for over three weeks now, is that ultimately if we want to do what Jesus did in the power of the Spirit, we've got to live the lifestyle that Jesus lived at least to some measure. You even see that Jesus, when the Holy Spirit comes upon him, just like we said, he goes out into the wilderness to fast for 40 days and 40 nights. And it says after that time of prayer and fasting, he returns in the power of the Spirit. And so put that image up for us one more time. Because if we have the truth and the teaching of God's word, if we're intentional about our spiritual formation and we put disciplines into practice, we're praying, we're fasting, we're seeking God, then all of a sudden we get in this context of community. I'm telling you, we were here Wednesday night praying for one another and the spirit just began to move on people. And the Lord started to minister to people's hearts because what happens when you have all three of those things going together at the heart of it, the Holy Spirit begins to work and manifest Christ in our midst. When you leave these things off, though, you are disconnected from the Holy Spirit in a way that he can actually manifest Christ in our midst in that powerful way. We must have these three things. We've got to have the teaching of God's word, the practices and the disciplines of praying, fasting, seeking the face of God. And we do that in the context of community so the Holy Spirit can move in our midst. Amen. Because he wants to move and he wants to do things that are beyond our ability to even understand. Number two, you've got to know your stage of discipleship 
and season of life. Because, you know, most of us, we start out, like I started out just reading the Bible. You know what I'm saying? And I was still half wild, but I started reading the Bible. Slowly, the Bible started to convict my heart. I entered into a, a place of prayer. And many of you, that's where you're at. You're just right now, you're just trying to figure out how to pray. You're just trying to figure out how to, how, how to, how to read Scripture and how to understand it. So you're in that stage of being with Jesus. And guess what? That's okay. I ain't expecting you to go out and cast 20 demons out tomorrow. Amen. Right? Y'all, this is a tough crowd this morning, right? I'd say the board would call a meeting after this message. Some of you are in that second stage. You've been with Jesus and you're now becoming like Him. You're starting to see transformation and spiritual fruit. Maybe you're getting freed up from a few things. But many of you now are at that stage where you realize, man, it's time for me to begin to preach the gospel. It's time for me to begin to teach the way, to lead a small group, to pray for the sick, to step out in faith and maybe even evangelize one of my lost buddies or evangelize a stranger on the street and talk to them about Jesus. And if they got something wrong with them, to pray for them. And if, and if a demon gets in the way, to hang handle my business with it. Amen. Amen. I remember when I was, when I first got saved, there's something that happened. I began to read scripture. I began to pray. I began to fast. And as I was abiding with Jesus, it led me into this encounter with the Holy Spirit where he set me free and transformed me in a moment of time. But then all of a sudden I had a compulsion to share Jesus with people. It's like I couldn't hold it back anymore. I moved into this place where now I'm preaching the gospel. I'm teaching the way because the Holy Spirit in me from being with Jesus is now moving through me. Some of us will never get to the place where we do what Jesus did because we were never with Jesus in the first place. And we need to be with Him and allow Him to shape us so that He moves us into this place where we're compelled to do these things. I remember when I first got saved, I don't know how old I was. I tell this story a lot because Barb's just sitting over there and it comes to my mind. But the first person I ever saw God heal instantly was Barb over here. Amen. And, and, and after it happened, I hadn't seen her for years because we didn't go to church together. I was about 21 or 22 years old. We worked together and I had been praying and fasting all week long. And I said, Lord, I felt compelled she was out here talking about having a torn rotator cuff, and I hear her, and my heart begins to pound. And I'm scared to death because I'm thinking, Lord, I ain't going to pray for her for healing in public. This is weird. I shouldn't do that. I couldn't hold it back. So I caught her in a side office in a filing cabinet room, right? And I went up to her, and I said, Barbie, care, 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 care if I pray for your shoulder real quick? Y'all know what I'm talking about. Like, following Jesus ain't easy. I mean, I was scared to death. That was the first time I ever done it in my life. And, and, and I did that, and I prayed, and I prayed like they prayed in scriptures, if I can remember. Like I commanded healing into her arm. And then I stepped back, and in my mind thought, I know that didn't work. <laughs> and Barb moved back, and she began to lift her arm. And she was shocked and amazed because all of a sudden now she could lift her arm. And God, and God healed her instantly. And so here's the thing. That's not the only time that I've seen God heal somebody. But every time I start to doubt, I go back to that moment. Because I remember five, six years passed, and in my mind, I begin to think, that didn't really happen. Like she lied to me, or it was just some kind of fluke. <laughs> like she was trying to make me feel... So then I, I end up coming to church over here and I'm sitting, down, I'm sitting down with her and Bob and Bob brings it up. He said, you remember when you prayed for her and her arm got healed? And I said, Lord, yeah, I remember that. I remember, I remember not long after that, I'm still in, a, in prayer and fasting. It's like two days after that. 
A couple of ladies come in. I don't even tell this stuff often because I feel weird talking about stuff like this because I'm really not saying this to be braggadocious. I've got nothing, y'all. Anything I got is the Holy Spirit that forced me to do it because I'm scared in myself. I don't want to go out on the streets and evangelize. I don't have a natural boldness. Two people come in. One lady that was working with us, I think her name was Shonda maybe. Is that her name? She, she, two people came in. And they were dealing with some stuff. So she said, says, well, let's get Clay to pray for you. So we go into a side room. Turns out, guess what? This woman's got a torn rotator cuff. So I pray for it. I kid you not, in one week, two for two. I, look, I've prayed. I've told this story before and people have come up to me since then with torn rotator cuffs. I ain't seen one healed since. Do you, do you know why? Well, pro- and, and probably because the Holy Spirit's trying to protect me from getting puffed up. I mean, I'm serious. Here's, what, here's my point with that is that the Holy Spirit chooses, He gives gifts of healings, working of miracles, but He gives them as He wills, as He desires. The key is that you are open to Him using you because I've tried to pray for tons of people and nothing happened. Is it still important for me to pray? Yes, Absolutely. But every now and then, if I'm open and I've been seeking the Lord, the Holy Spirit's going to manifest a gift. And He's going to manifest a gift through you if you're open. And He's going to use you because He doesn't just want to use clay. He ain't trying to give clay the glory. He wants God to get the glory. And He will protect His glory so that He won't just let any dude do a whole bunch of stuff. He wants to make sure that all the glory is going to Him. So this woman gets healed. And then, and then this is the first time that I ever saw this. This woman gets healed. And she's got another woman with her. She's over here crying. She said, pray for her, pray for her. The Holy Spirit's just resting on her. And she said, pray for her. She, and she had multiple sclerosis, this woman did. And, and so I started to pray for her. And I had a thought come to my mind about forgiveness, just like that. And I was, I kid you not, I didn't know what I was doing. I was just sort of going with the flow. I said, I think maybe the Lord wants you to forgive somebody. And something really happened in that moment where something changed and she got very angry. And, and I don't know how else to say this, but a demon manifested in this woman in that office. Okay, I'm just telling you what happened. I won't go into details. But I prayed for her and that demon left that woman. And the Lord set her free. Now, did I know anything about how to do that? No. Once again, I was like, oh no. But I felt the Holy Spirit pounding in my chest. And I felt a boldness say, speak to that thing and tell it to go. And I spoke to it and I told it to go. And the Lord said, you know what? They were so, we were so overwhelmed with the presence of God, we forgot to pray for her multiple sclerosis. Forgot to pray for it. We were all sitting there crying. They got out and left. They thanked me and all this. I'm like, this is the Lord. I, and I was scared to death. I went back into the office and was sitting there shaking like this. Just still scared. Since that time, I was telling somebody the other day, because, because even as a preacher, you're like, well, I, here, my honest feelings is like, honestly, most people don't even believe in this stuff anymore. I, that's just my honest feeling. So, so I don't, I don't want to share it because I never know how people will take it. And, and anytime I talk about spiritual gifts, at least five people leave the church. That's the world we live in today. That's the world we live in today. The most unbelief I've ever seen in the Christian church. I, I mean, I remember when people actually believed in stuff. So since that time, I wrote down because I thought, Lord, I I don't want to be crazy. 
But I wrote down every instance where I legitimately saw a demon manifest in a person. And I, and I knew 10 instances. And eight out of those 10, the Lord completely set them free. Eight out of those 10. And this was since I was, since that first time, since I was 21. So that's 13 years. In 13 years, I've seen 10. So again, my ratio is, you know, like, like a little bit under one a year. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I, I don't... I don't know why or when. All I know is that when I'm seeking God and I'm praying and I'm fasting and I'm saying, Lord, I'm open to you using me, sometimes things happen. And what I'm telling you is, is that as a church, if we were really seeking the Lord and really believing and saying, God, we're open to whatever you want to do. We can't force this stuff. We don't have the gifts of the Spirit in ourselves. But God, you can send your Spirit as you will to move in order to bring freedom and healing to people's lives. And Lord, if you would so choose, choose me, I'm open. The Bible says to earnestly desire spiritual gifts. And it's not just so you can act goofy in church. It is so you can minister to people outside of the church because there are broken people that need healing every day out there. And if all you've got for them is an invitation to church, you ain't got much. Amen. As good as an invite to church is, I'm telling you, step out, pray for people. If nothing happens, who cares? You obeyed the Lord. And go back to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm still open because I'm an obedient person. And no matter if I don't see anything happen ever again, we're going to continue to pray. We're going to continue to believe. We're going to continue to preach the gospel. We're going to share Jesus with people and believe you to bring salvation into people's hearts and into their lives. Amen. So you want to know what stage of life that you're at. And some of us, we just ain't there yet, right? And that's okay. Some of us need to say, like some people, need, they need to hear, you just need to rest. You need to take some time. You need to heal. And then other people need a swift kick in the pants and say, buddy, why ain't you in the game? And that's why it's hard to pastor a church because you've got a big, broad spectrum of people all in here right now. But where are you at in your season of life? People say all the time, you know, we got those braces out there. What would Jesus do? And, and that's kind of a really difficult question if you think about it. Because we try to simplify it in ways. But if you really talk about what Jesus would do in certain situations, he probably wouldn't do what you and I would do, obviously. But it's like, it's like buying a house. Well, what would Jesus do? Jesus wouldn't buy a house. I'll just tell you that right now. So the question is, what would Jesus do through me right now in my context of life at the spiritual level that I'm at? What is the next step for me right now? I'm not telling you to go out and cast demons tomorrow, but I'm telling you to begin to take that next step in the direction of becoming like Jesus and ultimately in the mind of saying, Holy Spirit, you're going to bring me to a place where I start to do what Jesus did. On some level, you may not have any of these major gifts show up, but on some level, you can do some measure of what Jesus did because you are a part of His body. Amen. Number three, don't underestimate the power of practicing the way of Jesus in community. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, it says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So Peter's vision is of a church that is following Jesus, the way of Jesus in a community so much that the people outside see us and they see our good works and the life that we're living and they say, man, this is amazing. I want to get in on that. And I got this quote, Dallas Willard, who I've been quoting a lot, he says it like this. Listen to this. He says, there's a special evangelistic work to be done, of course. 
And there are special callings too. That means that we need to go out in the streets and tell people about Jesus. Amen. But he said, but, but if those in the churches really are enjoying fullness of life, evangelism will be unstoppable and largely automatic. The local assembly can then become an academy where people throng from the surrounding community to learn how to live. It will be a school of life. For a disciple is but a pupil or a student where all aspects of that life seen in the New Testament records are practiced and then mastered under the leadership of those who have themselves mastered them through practice. Only by taking this as our immediate goal can we intend to carry out the Great Commission. Amen. That's a good word, isn't it? He's saying we can become an academy where people are looking in. He's saying that if we are filled with the Spirit, evangelism becomes natural because the broken world is longing to see a group of people living in community and filled with the love of God. And when we start to see this, he says they're going to come, they're going to show up. So here's my last point, and I'm done. Number four, start with the basics. Because I know a lot of this can be overwhelming. But if you're going to start with the basics... I can promise you this. If you are a Christian, the Spirit of God is living inside of you. That Spirit wants to share the gospel with someone. You say, but I'm not good at it. Do you know that the first time I shared the gospel with someone, I knew about three verses, and I was scared to death, stuttering all over the place, shaking and trembling, but I did it anyway under obedience. And guess what? Nobody got saved in that moment, but six years later, one of those men still remembered the moment that I came to him and shared it with him, and he ended up giving his life to Jesus. Share the gospel with somebody. Tell them about what Jesus is doing in your life. Something simple. It doesn't take much, but share the gospel with some, someone. Number two, eat, eat with people far from God. That's what Jesus did. Like he goes to Matthew and all these sinners and tax collectors that are far, with, far from God. I mean, he sees Zacchaeus, who is also a tax collector, hanging out in a tree. He says, hey, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree, man. He's like, why? Well, I'm going to go to your house because I ain't got one, and we're going to eat. And as he's eating with him and hanging out with him, Zacchaeus is convicted. He ends up giving his life to Jesus and says, I'm going to repent of all the stuff that I've done simply because he invites him into a place of community. And see, that's where we just learn to practice hospitality. We're kind to strangers. We look at ways to invite them in and bring them into this relationship. And then lastly, prophesy. You say, well, golly, that's not something basic. You know that the New Testament actually teaches that prophecy is basic. It says that all may prophesy one by one. And in, and in 1 Corinthians 12, he says that I, you should earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And one who prophesies speaks to another person for their upbuilding, their edification, their upbuilding, their encouragement, and their comfort. In other words, the heart of New Testament prophecy on its basic level is you getting in prayer, hearing a word from God that you feel like is from heaven for a person, and simply encouraging them with that word. It's a simple, that's, that's your starting point. You ever got into a place of prayer and just said, Lord, who can I encourage today? And guess what? Holy Spirit will probably put somebody on your heart. And you know what you can do? You can call them up and say, you know what? I felt like in prayer that the Holy Spirit wanted me to call you and share this verse with you and pray for you. And you know what you're doing? You're entering into the spirit of prophecy. That's what New Testament prophecy is. We, we, we try to make it some big outlandish thing where we're prophesying four red horses and, and a goblin moon or something. You know what I mean? They're like, and try to sell a book over it or something weird. That's not what the New Testament teaches on the gift of prophecy. I understand that there were old covenant prophets 
that were separate. These are prophets. These were men that were prophesying canonized scripture. Anything I prophesy to you, guess what? It ain't on the same level of scripture. I'm trying to hear from God's heart. And this is why the Bible teaches that if I give you a word that I feel like is from the Lord, you should test it. You should try to discern and pray whether this is God or not. And you should hold fast to that which is good and abhor that which is evil. Cast out. In other words, eat the meat and spit out the bones. Amen. But see, I felt like I had a word for Barb yesterday. And I, I, I like to think that it encouraged you, right? It's, that's that gift. But none of you all would have thought, well, that's prophecy. Because you put it on this big supernatural, mystical level. And I'm telling you, flowing in the Holy Spirit is a natural thing. It's not crazy. It's not goofy. But He will empower you to boldly speak, to lay hands on sick people and pray and believe. And I'm telling you, Jesus will begin to work through you and move through you if you will be open to it. But you've got to ask, where are you at right now, right? Start with the basics. Start somewhere where you can begin to move in this direction because there is no limit to the possibilities of how Jesus can use you. But you must start somewhere. You can't look at the insurmountable task of doing what Jesus did and say, well, we'll never get there. We won't ever get there if we don't start. As a church, we will never get there if we don't start. But if, if as a church, we begin to truly put the practices of Jesus into our lives, we pray, we fast together, we have prayer meetings where we believe in God for things. We go out, we evangelize, we share the gospel with our friends. We invite a lost person that we know is far from God to come and eat with us one day. All of a sudden, we see God begin to move in supernatural ways and we can testify of the goodness of God because He's beginning to move in our midst. This is the way that Jesus taught, amen? Once you bow your heads where you're at. Lord, I just pray for each and every person that's here this morning. Because, Lord, this is a difficult message even for me to speak about. But, but God, we believe that you are an almighty, all-powerful God. And, Lord, you have given your church the Holy Spirit in order to continue that work in the world. And all of us, Lord, we're your body. Not one part more important than the next with different giftings. And Lord God, you want to use all of us. The Bible says that the Spirit manifests himself for the profit of all. And so Holy Spirit, I ask you to manifest yourself in greater ways in each person's life here this morning that you would fill us all afresh with your Holy Spirit. Lord, and as we go out and we're on our way, you can't plan for things like this, Lord. You can't plan for just breakouts of the Holy Spirit. But as we're going on our way, Holy Spirit, let us be open to you as you lead us, as you guide us, as you compel us to speak to the lost, to share the gospel, to invite somebody to have dinner with us in a conversation about where they're at in life and to ultimately teach them about who Jesus is and about what he's done, Lord to pray for them if they're sick and to believe you, God, to move in their lives. If they're demonized and depressed, Lord, that we can pray and tell it to go and that that authority would be manifested in our lives so that those people could experience freedom and inner healing, God, and peace. Lord Jesus, pour your spirit out on your church and on your people. And Lord, even if somebody here this morning or somebody listening doesn't know you, Jesus, I'm asking you to do the greatest miracle in their heart and that is to give them salvation through faith and your finished work on the cross because Lord, you died for us, Jesus, for our sins and you were raised from the dead on the third day so that we could be raised again and experience eternal life. Father, we thank you. We submit our lives to you, Father. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.